Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh61. And I say that so you know it's live. This week, we have all four regular hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of ThisIsTrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet, and the Get Out of Hell Free Card, a fun online, offline, viral gimmick. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host of MacMost.com and of WPTipsAndHacks.com, and I make mobile games at CleverMedia.com. I'm Leo Notenboom, lover of coffee. I guess that's my gimmick. Corgis, that's another gimmick. Um, and, of course, computers and the Leo behind AskLeo.com, where I try desperately to help people answer their computer and technology-related questions. I'm Kevin Savitz, creator of FactZero.com, which is not a gimmick. It's completely serious. Awesome. And FreePrintable.net, which is also a completely serious site for printing documents and templates. And don't call it a gimmick. It's totally, totally, totally serious stuff. Wow. That's serious. <laughs> I get my calendars from there. Awesome. They're free. That's like, yeah, people love the calendars. It just... It's uh, like every, every year is just millions of people downloading calendars. I don't know. Pretty like, cool. Like people want to know what day it is and stuff. So it's not a gimmick. No. Yes, sir. What's rocking your world today? Oh, yeah. Well, I was in the shower this morning and I oh. started hearing this rumble. And I thought, well, we've been getting a lot of snow. Maybe it's sliding off the roof and onto the deck or the ground next to us. And uh, what, then I got a text from my wife saying, and she is in the, the guest house uh, out in the yard. You're reading text in the shower? No, I actually waited until I dried off. <laughs> okay. And she was going, was that an earthquake? And so I got on usgs.gov and found out, yes, it was. Um, it was in the town of Bedrock, which is uh, southwest Colorado. It was a four Just and a twist. half. Wow. It's kind of cool. It's the fourth earthquake I've felt since I've lived here. I'm surprised you get as many as you do. Um, we're overdue for our big one here up in the Northwest. And yes, you are. It's been a while. And four and a half, I mean, you know, you, you're originally from California. You, you, four and yeah. a half is barely noticeable, right? Right. I, I mean, I, I didn't actually feel it. I more heard it, which was interesting. Yeah. It went on for 15 or 20 seconds. But, um, yeah, I'm very used to earthquakes. I've been in uh, three, seven, or bigger quakes. So, wow. yeah, that, those, those get rocking. Yeah. Entertaining. But, yes, this is a seismically uh, active area since, uh, you know, we've got lots of um, hot springs here and things like that. So it's really so interesting. In the, in the tech sphere, do you, do you guys think that, people will ever be able to predict earthquakes? Hmm. Not, Don't know enough about it. Not very far in advance. I'm going to claim, yeah, that's, that's where I'm headed. It's, it's not a binary. It's not a yes or no. It's are we going to get better at predicting them? Because, yeah, we can predict them now about, you know, 10 seconds before they happen. In other words, it's not particularly useful. Will we get better than that? Yes. Will we get better enough to be significantly useful? I don't know. That's a tough Well, one. in uh, Fukushima, when they had their meltdown, um, so Japan is very seismically active, and they had a system where if there was something detected, that they would shut down their nuclear reactors really quickly. And, you know, they just didn't get the Fukushima down very fast because the quake was so close to it that um, they just didn't get a chance to finish it. Right, right. And I suppose, you know, even, you know, five or 10 seconds worth of notification is enough for automated shutdown systems. Uh, but I'm just sort of thinking about, you know, people in tall buildings and, and that kind of thing. I mean, they're just not going to have the opportunity to do much of anything unless it's like a good, you know, 15, 20, 30 minute warning. Um, and even then. So yeah, I just don't see it happening. Yeah. Yeah. Be nice. Not, if it, not with any kind of accuracy. I mean, like, they they definitely can say, you know, there's something going on here, um, Mount St. Helens or whatever, and right. uh, there's something that's going to happen, but we don't know when and we don't know how big. 
The problem is, of course, once they say, okay, we think something is imminent, every time they're wrong, people will believe them less. Yep. Yep. Um, and that's going to essentially nullify the impact when they finally do get it right. That's just because humans are stupid. Uh, unless they're animals, right? Because then the thing is that, of course, every time there's an earthquake, somebody, there's all these people that say, you know, my dog was acting weird all morning. Well, I have a parakeet that was chirping strangely. My dog and, acts weird every morning. Well, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> so, so the deal is it's like all the days where your dog acted weird or the chickens in the chicken coop did weird stuff that no earthquake happened. You forget about those. But the morning that yeah. they did it and there was an earthquake, you're like, aha, see the animals know. So if it's a human making a prediction, it's like the boy who cried wolf, right? Eventually people are like, keep yep. dismissing it. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. But if it's random things or animals or uh, you know, whatever, then people tend to forget the opposite way. We actually had a, a I mean, the Pacific Northwest, the Seattle area is really, really um, a good example of this when it comes to uh, forecasting snow. Um, I've mentioned publicly that our uh, local weather people love it when the word snow is in the, is in the uh, forecast, even a, just a slight chance of snow they kind of go nuts and make it seem like it's something horrible that's going to happen, you know, <laughs> huge accumulation. And of course, nothing does. So we're all really kind of um, almost annoyed when they do start to pre- uh, forecast snow, except a couple of weeks ago when what they forecasted actually came true and then some. Um, so it's, you know, it's one of those mixed blessings. I, I hope that, uh, that they get, well, they are getting better at forecasting weather, but it would be nice if they could actually, you know, make a useful and reliable uh, prediction on earthquakes. Yep. All right, Kevin, Kevin. Hello. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, decided that I was done with my, uh, I, I needed to put it, my SVG, uh, renderer for the Atari 8-bit computer. I uh, needed to call it done enough for now. So I, uh, I asked my Twitter followers what I should name the thing. Um, my best title that I came up with was, was uh, Savitz Vector Nasher, which would be SVG. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, my buddy suggested the uh, name Renderific. So that was what I went with. So I finished Renderific 1.0, which is my SVG renderer for Atari 8-bit computers, and I put it up on GitHub this morning. Um, I'm not very good at GitHub. I I I know it's super powerful, and 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 uh, a lot of people who really know what they're doing do command line things, and and uh, I just do it all through the web interface and just kind of uploaded the files by hand and because it's not a big project. And uh, so now it's all up there on, on GitHub. And uh, um, another part of, of my day, I spent time researching uh, open source software licenses because uh, it felt like it would be fun to rather just put it up there in sort of vague sort of way just to, to put it up with a license. So uh, uh, there's a bunch of little websites that kind of explain the differences between different open source software licenses. And I ended up going with the uh, MIT license. Uh, I guess the, I mean, the big one that everyone has heard of, I think is uh, the GNU public license, but there's other ones that are more, more open, more, uh, I can't think of the word, just kind of more permissive. Um, And uh, the, the ones that were recommended to me were the MIT license and the BSD license. So after looking at them all, I decided MIT, and uh, GitHub made it super easy. You can basically, when you upload your thing, you can say, what license is this? And then you can you know, pick whatever it is, and it will just upload the license file and label everything for you automatically. So uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. So question for you, Kevin. Yeah. Um, what prompted you to want a license at all other than just, you know, instead of, as opposed to just making this public domain? Uh, I don't know. Um, it's like not like anyone's going to use this stupid basic program for any sort of commercial use. I think my, my main thing was if someone ports it to another system, I would like credit. That's, that was basically it. I would like to say, you know, this is based on renderific by Kevin Savitz. That was it. And, and uh, the MIT license basically requires 
license and copyright notice to be maintained. So that was it. Just I just wanted a little bit of credit if uh, if this turns into something else. Okie dokie. So fair enough. Yeah. So have you guys ever released software under um, any sort of free software licenses? And and what did you pick and why? Never done it. It always seemed like such a hassle. <laughs> I mean, I've wanted to do it, and I think at one point I did look at, oh, I should release this as, you know, something. And then I was like, oh, I have to do this and this and there's this. And I was like, I oh, forget. <laughs> it's easier actually to write about it, to actually say, like, write an article or a book and mm-hmm. include, like, here's all the code and, here, and explain it and then just release it like that. Uh, and then just say, oh, well, this is free to use if you want to develop your own thing from it. It's right. <laughs> So, but I, I imagine it's easier for me to do that. But most people, it's probably easier to actually do the, the right. real thing. Well, doing it through GitHub, I found it wasn't any work at all. It was way less effort than I expected. Because like I said, I just chose a license and it, it took care of it all. If I had been putting it somewhere else, then it, might, it certainly would have been more work. Um, so, you know, and it's kind of weird because with, with text... Or even art, if you want to release this, um, something in, into the, the semi-public domain or you know some rights reserved, Creative Commons is really taken over as the the way to do it. There are a, a few Creative Commons licenses to choose from, and they all give you uh, you know the, the kind of the choices of what you want. Yeah, I want to be credited, or people can make commercial works, or whatever it is, and. So, but but basically, it comes down to that core of Creative Commons is is the way people do it. And with software, there are many many choices. You know, the the GNU Public License and the Mozilla License and the Apache License and the MIT and the BSD. And so, it's kind of weird. It hasn't solidified into into one place. I think yeah, it's funny because there's always arguments between the various competing factions about. Well, no, this piece of the license that's different than your piece of that license is really important and we can't let it go. They just can't can't come together. The closest I've ever done is Creative Commons. And in fact, the vast majority of Ask Leo content is uh, actually released under Creative Commons, uh, Creative Commons uh, attribution, no commercial, mm-hmm. uh, no derivatives, I think. So basically, you, the only thing you can do uh, with, my, uh, with my content is uh, republish it and not charge for that and to make sure that you don't change it and keep mentioning me. I did that because there are actually a number of users groups that will occasionally pick up articles and republish them in their own, uh, their own magazines. Mm-hmm. Cool. And the other thing I want to mention is uh, I, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned uh, uh, Julia Evans zines that teach about how to do things on the command line. And she just came out with a new one called bite size networking. Uh, it is $10 and I bought it and I printed it out uh, two sided in color. So it makes a little, little nice little book and uh, it explains uh, the super basics and how to use uh, uh, dig and TCP dump and ngrep and IP tables and ETH tool and all sorts of cool command line uh, networking things. So I'm enjoying it. I recommend it. Check it out. That's actually at a pretty geeky level. I was I was hoping it would end up being something that uh, explained how to make Windows networking work because I still haven't. Played it. <laughs> Nobody can explain that. That's that's the point. I, <laughs> I, I have an article on my site called "Networking Sucks," and there's a reason it's called that. It's 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 amazingly fragile. Speaking of fragile, I suppose I I, I started today by firing my bookkeeper. Um, Sounds yeah. like a story there. Well, it's one of those things where um, I finally understand the term ghosting. And uh, it's kind of sort of what she was doing to me. She would make a commitment and then not not come through. And I'd not hear from her and not hear from her. And well, as of today, the tables have turned and she's not going to hear from me. I uh, I'm, am going to be talking to a potential replacement tomorrow. But yeah, bookkeeping is just not not something I enjoy doing, and uh, much less you know filing the reports associated with it all and so forth. So um, it's the it's the not particularly enthusiastic part of of what I do for a living. It's uh, it's drudgery, and I, it's something I'd love to hand off to somebody else. 
Yeah, I am ready to get a new one myself, but uh, I'm actually going to pivot here. Um, your audio has been going up and down, Leo. So, uh, so okay. readers have commented about that. And as you were finishing up, it really came back strong. And it's like, oh, well, his audio was low before. Hmm. So question, is it simply volume or is it quality? I think there's probably both going on, but not necessarily at the same time. This time it was um, definitely the volume was coming up. Okay, I'm going to do a better better job of speaking at my microphone as opposed to um, potentially uh, speaking past it or moving my head around too much. That's one of the things I was wondering if I was doing. For the listeners who 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 are new, that we've received a couple of, of comments that it's my audio that is uh, actually having some issues from time to time. And we're trying to, I'm trying to nail down exactly what they are today. For example, I've got a very little software running on my machine other than you know, a browser and the, the conferencing software we're using to record this and uh, process or process explorer from uh, windows sys internals. And it's not showing anything out of the ordinary, I'm looking for, you know, like high CPU usage. I'm not even seeing any network usage, which means that uh, the 24 kilohertz that the conferencing software is telling me uh, I'm sending uh, theoretically should be going through just fine. But why it might be uh, uh, jittery or something like that, I don't know. But we're trying to, trying to figure it out. So like I said, lesson one, speak towards the microphone. Yeah, that could simply be it. I mean, <clears throat> some microphones are better at, you know, omnidirectional and or more omnidirectional than others. And right, uh, and One I'm doing the, I'm doing a headset, so no matter where I look, <laughs> the microphone right. and my mouth are in the same. Right, I, I know that, and that's actually one of the things that I might try uh, in, in an upcoming episode is switching to my headset. The problem I have with the headset, I'm kind of enamored by the quality of the audio that comes out of these AT2020s. Um, I, I really like the sound. And what I've noticed when I use the headset that I have, which I think is just a Plantronics, if I'm not mistaken. And I think that's what you're using too, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, Plantronics, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's different. It's different enough that I notice the difference, but maybe in the long run, uh, it really shouldn't matter as much and consistency is probably more important. Perhaps. I, I, I keep trying to spend money on microphones to make what I say come out smarter, but it just doesn't work. <laughs> you need, for that, you need books. Books. Oh, okay. <laughs> Isn't there an AI for of books? Yeah. Speaking of books, I read a, 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 just finished reading a great book called Erebus, The One Ship, Two Epic Voyages, and the Greatest Naval Mystery of All Time, written by Sir Michael Palin. Um, of course, is well-known for many things, including writing lots of travel uh, books and history books. And this is a great book uh, if you like epic time, you know, nonfiction adventure type stuff. It's about a ship uh, that was sent out during the scientific age of exploration, the middle of the 19th century by the British. And uh, the first two-thirds of the book covers its first famous journey where it went to Antarctica and basically traveled further south than any ship had ever traveled before. They were the first to see the great ice wall of Antarctica. And that's, and in fact, the commander of that was James Ross. And that's the Ross ice shelf named after him. And the volcano there is Erebus volcano. Actually there's two volcanoes, Terror and Erebus. And they were the two ships. Erebus was the flagship and the second ship was Terror. And uh, they, so they did three, six, uh, three years, uh, 41, 42, 43, uh, 1841, 42, 43, that is. And they basically tried, tried to penetrate into Antarctica to go to the South Magnetic Pole, which of course would have been impossible, but they didn't know that. Um, But they did chart a lot of the Antarctic coast. They, they did take a lot of wildlife samples. They made uh, scientific observations of all kinds and did all sorts of incredible things that are more incredible considering the fact, well, I think it took 70 years for the next ship to get anywhere near where they got. And by then, of course, you would have been thought of as crazy going to Antarctica in a ship using sail power. <laughs> These ships went through the ice with sail power, nothing but sail power. So when they got stuck in the ice, 
they had to actually raise the sails and use wind power to break out of the ice. Today, you just, you know, rev the engines up and, you know, try to break through. Power through, yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of incredible that it's these bit- most, mostly wooden ships with sails went to Antarctica three times and survived. Um, today, you can do it like in a fishing boat or a rowboat, right? What, today? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah sure. Zodiac. Yeah, with the... Uh, yeah, but uh, and then so then that was such a successful voyage that they said, well, we'll have these two ships go and find that Northwest Passage that has been eluding us all these years. And the two ships went off with great fanfare as the big heroes uh, with you know new commander and everything to go find the Northwest Passage through the islands north of Canada uh, to the Pacific Ocean, and they promptly were never heard from again. And then there was trying to figure out there were rescue missions for almost a decade, trying to find them. There was all this detective work over spanning from then all the way till now. And in 2014, the first of the two ships was finally found. So the ships disappeared 1850 something, 51, I guess. And then um, weren't found until 2014. And boy, were those guys happy to be rescued. <laughs> yeah, right. So there were no, there were no survivors. The, uh, they did find body remains. They did find uh, legends among the Inuit of the area of Interesting. the ships. But it was a big mystery uh, what happened to them, and they had to piece together. Um, so anyway, Michael Palin does a great job of doing lots and lots of research. And in his, in his typical fashion, he also journeyed to a lot of the places uh, where the ship had been, like Tasmania and the Falkland Islands and Greenland and all that. So um, it's a great book, a lot of science in it. You learn a lot of details about how ships like that operated in terms of like the, sci- you know, the science uh, that they were doing there and how the ships worked and um, uh, you know, how you survived and how you went on these epic multi-year journeys. Uh, they actually think that one of the things that did them in wasn't so much getting locked into the ice, which they certainly were, but that it could have been simply food poisoning mm. from their rations that weakened the the crew to the point where they simply couldn't make the overland journey to rescue themselves. So they think they were suffering from scurvy and the food rations they had did not last the appropriate amount of time to save them from scurvy. So. Anyway, really good read if you like that kind of thing. So this is, you said Michael Palin. Now he has done a number of uh, documentaries. Video yeah, before. yep. And I believe he did this, he, this book, I believe, is also a BBC radio program. And I listened to the audio book on Audible, and I'm not sure whether the audio, the BBC audio program is the Audible book I listened to because it was Michael Palin reading it, or whether uh, there were separate things. This seems like such an opportunity for a video program, though, for him to, you know, like you said, he's traveling yeah. to these different locations and so forth. So. Well, there's not much. So the first, that, that amazing first voyage, when they left on that voyage, photography hadn't been invented. Right. When they got back, it had been invented. So <laughs> they just missed actually taking all these photographs. And the only visual things they had is one of the crew members painted a couple paintings of the ships. Like there was one winter where they actually had a party out on the ice. They were stuck in the ice. Actually, it wasn't winter. They, they'd be crazy to go to Antarctica in the winter. It was summer, right? But it, they were stuck on the ice in the middle of the summer. And they had a party out on the ice and he did a painting of it and things like that. When they went on the second voyage, a different crew, um, photography had been invented, and they had taken with them one of the earliest cameras. But since the ships didn't survive, neither did the camera or any pictures they may have taken. Yeah, I mean, picture it didn't happen. That's my model. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, and the funny thing is, is they took pictures of all the crew members when they were leaving on that second voyage, the officers, I should say. So they have pictures of the officers just before they left on the voyage. Nobody thought to take a picture of the ship. So there's not a single you know, photograph in existence until 2014 uh, of the ship, except for a tiny piece of it behind one of the portraits of one of the officers. But, you know, I mean, that's how it is, right? I, mean, I, I remember renting a car, driving all around Australia for a month, and that car was the central part of my life. I lived in that car. And... I, at trip, I have tons of great photographs. Not one picture of that car. Why would I take a picture of the car? It was just a car, but it was just a rental. But it was just a, it was you know an important car 
as things go, got me through the outback and everything, they probably felt the same way about the ship. Why take a picture of the ship? As opposed course, to today when you've got, you know, yeah, billions of pictures and selfies with the car, the car by itself, the car here, the car there, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. So anyway, it's a, it's a great read. There's science stuff. There's adventure stuff. There's history stuff in there. Um, cool. So that's all about that. Speaking of pictures. Yes. What an awesome segue. So last week, it's kind of a follow-up to something when we you, talked when about. You, when you point it out, it stops being an awesome segue. So, you know. <laughs> it just, it the, gets more awesome. Segue. Kind <laughs> of like explaining a joke, but go it ahead. Awesome to me. <laughs> let, me give, let, me, let me have my awesome where I can find it. Please. All right. Okay. Anyway, last week, we talked about how ISO is a lie. Um, when it comes fake. to... I the word was fake. Um, actually, the original video by a gentleman named Tony Northup, a big photography guy, uh, actually goes out and calls ISO a lie because one of the things that he's claiming is that camera manufacturers are kind of sort of manipulating the ISO ratings of their cameras to make them seem more sensitive than they are, when in fact at the hardware level they're supposedly, you know, there's no such thing as ISO. There's a... Uh, um, there's, it's it's a a specific thing relating to film and of course digital cameras don't use film so naturally that was i found that incredibly fascinating we talked about it for a while last week naturally of course uh, there have been several rebuttals and apparently lots and lots of comments because that's what happens on the internet we so got some too. There, we did. We got some feedback. And uh, as a result, I took a quick look today, and, and I ran across this actually a couple of days ago. The website that I'm paying attention to, by the way, is fstoppers.com. They are a, uh, a general interest photography uh, site. They publish a number of different articles every almost every day, actually. But one of the ones that got published a couple of days ago was ISO is not fake, and Tony Northrup is wrong. And then another one, one final look at Tony Northrup's ISO drama. What it's interesting, what's interesting to me is that uh, two things. One is he may or may not be wrong, and it may or may not depend on the camera he happens to be talking about at the time. One of the quotes from the second article is that some, not all, cameras are ISO invariant. In other words, the ISO doesn't really necessarily mean anything. The neat thing about the second article is that they actually did some tests. They actually took hardware and tested it and did the after, you know, the, the thing that Tony was suggesting was the, the, the equivalent of boosting your ISO in the camera was to take it into something like Lightroom or Photoshop and uh, change the exposure in software. Anyway, the conclusion that they came to is that, uh, yep, some are, some aren't, and in the long run, it probably doesn't matter a whole lot. Uh, there are sources of noise. Noise comes from a couple of different places. One place is, in fact, um, you know, doing the math, increasing the existing noise. Uh, another place is uh, potentially the, uh, the, an increase. To the extent that ISO is real or, or actually means something in a camera, there are designs where the analog signal that comes from the sensor uh, before it gets translated to digital, which is what's stored in the actual uh, image format, that can be multiplied. And that is, it's still multiplication uh, from my way of thinking, but it is um, analog multiplication, which does different things to the to the noise that might be found in others. Anyway, I just find it not necessarily uh, conclusive, and I don't think I really care. I think, <laughs> I, honestly, I, what, I, what I really care about here is that there's a tremendous amount of flexibility with what you can do uh, with digital images that you never could with film, and it's actually making an, uh, you know, an, having an understanding of how these things work uh, to even this level where we're not really sure at the very bottom of the stack exactly how things are done. Um, we know enough to be able to do some really amazing things with photographs that perhaps we wouldn't have thought to do before. So, so, so I, I was also curious about this whole thing sure. and I messaged two of my good friends who are much more knowledgeable about photography than I am. They're both professionals and they 
I think they'd both already seen it actually. Um, and they, they gave me all this stuff that was over my head about right. why he's kind of right and kind uh-huh. of wrong. Uh-huh. Um, and I absorbed some of it. Uh, one of the interesting things I got was, uh, well, first of all, is it really matters. You're only talking about raw photos here. If you're talking about JPEG right. or whatever else, you, the term that was used was you're baking in the ISO. You know, so you're, you take a picture, you, you've got all your different settings, you're baking it in if it's JPEG, and you're not going to be able to change that very much. Right. It's, it, this only applies if you're shooting raw. And when you're shooting raw, ISO, depending on the camera and everything, it's not perfect, it's kind of like metadata. It's kind of like if you say 800 ISO and you're looking at the photo raw 800 ISO, you could change the ISO to 400 ISO or 100 ISO or 2300 ISO because you have the raw. Not exactly that, but I did find in my collection of photos some star photography I took where I took a JPEG image with my camera of like a 10-second exposure of some stars on a, you know, out in the country where there's no city lights. And I took a JPEG and immediately took a RAW afterwards. I don't know why I did that. I probably took the JPEG and it said, oh, crap, I should be doing this in RAW, and then immediately took RAW. So I had the two to compare. And I was amazed with the RAW how much I was able to manipulate the exposure compared to the JPEG. JPEG, I wasn't able to do very much. Um, I mean, it looked like I was manipulating an image like I've always done in Photoshop or something. You know, it's just like, I'm not getting new information there. It's just, I'm just, you know, manipulating what I'm seeing to make things brighter or whatever. The raw though, I mean, I was able to, what looked like total darkness, bring out the stars. And I was actually, I did a test where I adjusted the exposure to get the exact same image I got on JPEG. So I was able to bring out that JPEG image by setting the exposure right, but I could make it, uh, you know, go either side with it, with the raw. So it really got me thinking about raw and taking it. And I looked at some other photos I had taken with uh, raw settings. And I was amazed at how much I was able to manipulate those in uh, software much more than what I'm used to. Because I manipulate photos all the time. I take it and it's like, oh, let me adjust the color to make it look a little more like I remember it or the brightness or whatever. And I kind of got used to what I can do, what I can't do. With the few raw photos I had, I was amazed. I was like, wow, I could do so much more with these photos than what I thought I could. So that made me think that I need to begin shooting raw. Unfortunately, uh, I mean, it's like the the photo that was. Um, I took two photos, one raw, one regular, just you know, my you know the wall in my office, and it was one point six megs for the JPEG and thirteen megs for the raw. Was the JPEG like the highest possible quality? Yeah, yeah. So actually, it was an HEIC. It wasn't even a JPEG. The JPEG was like two point six. One point six was HEIC, the high efficiency, um, mm. but. Uh, you know, the 13 was 13 megs. Right. That was the raw. So one of the things I'm going to be doing from now on is first in my iPhone, uh, the camera app only shoots HEIC or JPEG, but you can get other apps that will shoot raw. I'm going to use those other apps when right. I'm taking a nice photo, when it's like, oh, beautiful sunset or whatever, then I'm going to shoot raw. And I think with my DSLR, I'm just, I'm going to set it to raw. And that's what I'm going to use. It's funny because I've been shooting raw for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's not, I knew that you could always do some more with it than you could with just a JPEG. I've never had it pointed out quite so tangibly exactly how much more information there is available in that format. So yeah, I've, you know, I did the thing where I'm investing in larger memory cards and I've got lots of storage and all that kind of stuff just to, to deal with the fact that these files are so large. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, um, and now if, if anything, I do, you know, I have occasionally adjusted the exposure on some of these raw pictures because for whatever reason, things didn't, you know, it didn't snap the way I expected it to. And it turned out much darker than I thought. I don't feel nearly as guilty about turning up the light uh, when I'm, when I'm manipulating these things in post, just because I really understand now that um, in fact, I'm not losing what I think I'm losing as I would be if I were doing it in JPEG. Mm. Yep. So. Yeah. And I, uh, as that's the good that came out of this whole thing, whatever, whatever it is, this controversy, right. it, it has converted me 
to someone that wants to shoot raw photos as much yep. as I can. Yep. Yep. Very cool. You know, I used to love back in the day, uh, shooting photos and then manipulating the photos in the darkroom. Mm-hmm. Mm. That was a hobby for a while. I did it in high school. I did it in college and, and yeah. it was fun. Yep. And, and as much as I enjoy using computers and I still enjoy photography, I, I've never enjoyed manipulating photos on the computer. And I realized you can do more and I realize that it's a hobby for many people and I'm not disparaging it. But for, but for me, I, I never enjoy it. And, and uh, I'm just the kind of person who, I mean, you know, you've taken whatever, 200 pictures on your vacation or your outing or whatever it is. And you've got all these pictures and then it, it just feels to me like not fun, but work to have to go in there and, tweak the pictures and and uh, have the you know to, to make the lighting better and i mean i i'm up for a, a quick crop and for hitting the button that says enhance that makes it you know, <laughs> and and that's about all and i don't i don't understand it in myself that I, you know, I like computers and and i i like photography and why don't i like doing this on computers but i feel like it's just overwhelming to me and there's there's especially if you're in something like you know, Photoshop or something or the GIMP that it just has a, a million zillion options, but I don't know. So, yeah. no, I, and, so I, I'm listening to this going, yeah, I, you're probably all right about this and should be shooting a raw, but I'm, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take the vacation picture or the picture of the kid at the beach or whatever it is. I'm going to crop it. I'm going to hit enhance. And if I want a print of it, I'll send it off to, to MPix or, or off to the, the inkjet and that's it. Then I'm done. Move, yeah. move on. I'm my life. Take, take the, taking the picture is more important than how you take the picture. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's, if, if, if all this were to scare you into not taking pictures at all, that's, that's the wrong result. Right. Um, in my case, um, you know, it, it was clearly a match made in heaven like you. I mean, back in high school, I spent time in the dark room. I was a photographer for my yearbook besides being the editor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, that went on into, into college and so forth. And, when digital cameras came along, it was like, oh, look at that. Isn't this fun? Um, and yeah, it has been for me. It's always kind of fun. I, I now look for excuses to, uh, to take some pictures, usually of the dogs, and um, you know, crop, enhance, adjust the lighting, do all this kind of stuff. And I've actually, it's one of those things where uh, you know, it, it's a skill. It's an art. Uh, and I, I kind of feel like every time I do it, I get a little bit better. And that's, that's the, the results are kind of nice. So... And I think there's something to be said for just taking snapshots and not being so involved in all the manipulation. You just want a memory of something you did. And I think that's okay too. It is absolutely. And in fact, that's what happens with my phone, right? If I'm somewhere, I will, I will grab the phone. They take, it takes wonderful pictures. It certainly takes better pictures than not taking a picture at all. Right. I mean, it's, 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 uh, you know, and I, I'm okay with that. And yes, I'll do a little bit of post on that. Usually, usually cropping in this case, or sometimes adjusting uh, color, but uh, cause like I said, the phone, the, the camera or yeah, the camera in my phone is so good. I mean, it takes such good high resolution photos that I can do that, but you're right. It's much more important just to be able to be in the moment and take the picture uh, sometimes than it is to, uh, to get, you know, all worked up about it. Yep. Oh, that's where it all starts, right? You just take pictures, just don't get caught up into it. But then you end up with these photos and you look and you say, hey, that one, look mm-hmm. at that one. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, uh... So, so yeah. Kevin, when you take snapshots with your phone, do you have uh, GPS on? Uh, I believe, I, I do. Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, because that, that way uh, the, the Photos app will sort them by where they were taken. Actually, I was giving you that as a transition. Oh, uh, see? So, see? See, that see. was not an awesome segue. Yeah, that was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I had a story that I was talking about. Um, huh. no, I, I, was, like, I was so involved like in that conversation. Yeah, right. Uh, like Y2K. Okay. So I saw an interesting story at ZDNet that said uh, that some uh, GPS receivers may uh, malfunction uh, or no longer work after April 6th. Basically, the story is if you have an older GPS, um, there's going to be a, something called the GPS weak rollover uh, 
that happens every once in a while and the GPS signals start back counting at zero or some technical mumbo like that. And uh, while most modern GPS receivers shouldn't be affected, uh, older ones will probably, uh, A, think the date is wrong. And, and since they think the date is wrong, they will think your position is wrong. <laughs> and so basically these things will be useless. And I think it's kind of neat because it's, it's a 1024 issue. It can only have, you know, zero to 1024 or 1023 really, which is total is 1024. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. got to start over again. Yeah. Huh. You couldn't yeah. have thrown another bite at it, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One more or one more bit. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you're off by one nanosecond of time, you're off by a foot in location, which I thought was a really interesting stat. That's the hmm. piece that just amazes the heck out of me. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, our, each of our phones has a GPS receiver and no, they're not, they're not accurate to a foot, but the degree to which they are accurate still represents an incredibly tiny slice of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just amazing. And uh, I knew they had completely to do with time. Never occurred to me that this week issue. Um, but when Kevin posted this to our um, internal list, is like, that's really neat. Yeah. So, yeah, I used to have this old Garmin... It was like the first GPS thing I had and it was a little black thing with an antenna that stuck out of the top. And it was, this is well before anybody, anybody had phones and uh, we used it for geocaching and stuff a few times. And uh, also for, for navigation and and going on road trips, but it had, I think 14 megabytes of memory in it and you had to load it ahead of time with where you're going to be going. <laughs> so hook up to the PC. And at the, even at the time I, I was a Mac person, but I had a PC for work and uh, you know, you'd use a serial cable and load it with, with uh, where we were going. I remember specifically using it for a trip to New Mexico, load it with all the, all the maps and uh, you could, you could drive around. It would tell you. Uh, so I don't have that unit anymore, but I have the feeling that like that level of unit is the one that, is uh, no longer going to be useful. Uh, so I, I could top that. Yeah. I had around 1995, I bought, I think it was a Garmin as well, a GPS unit that was for hiking. And it was so old. <laughs> First of all, there were no maps, no maps at all. Uh, the way it worked was you just had a, an LED screen that I think was something like 40 pixels by 100 pixels. I mean, it really was. Uh, the resolution was nothing. And if you would start hiking, it would put a dot in the middle of the screen. Mm-hmm. And as you moved around, it would draw a line with the idea being like, if you're going on a, a, like you wanted to find your way back to where you were, you would see this path that you were following. Uh, and then you could, you know, loop back around to get to where you started. So it was a or, don't get lost machine, basically. Yeah. Well, you could also, <laughs> you could set a GPS location. So you could actually bring out your map, figure out the GPS location, uh, the longitude and latitude down to the second, type that in, and it would put a little marker on the screen, and then you could move towards it, and you could see that as a dot. You could zoom in and zoom out on the, make the dots bigger or smaller. And, uh, and then, of course, you could see your longitude and latitude, and that's where you really used it uh, because you would bring out your map and kind of plot your <laughs> location on the, on the paper map. Um, and I used this thing a few times while hiking. It it had an antenna on it, and you know it, you fit in your hand, but it still was a little bulky. And then you, um, I used it for hiking a bunch of times. Uh, it was all that with the technology that was available at the time. It was kind of neat. And then in uh, December thirty on December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine, it died. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a it, you dropped you dropped it on the concrete floor <laughs> yeah i dropped it on the just just a second before i would see whether the y2k bug would <laughs> no it, well, it, interestingly it was, the last time the the week rollover happened was august of 99 so it it survived that well yeah and i'm not i can't remember it, there were several things around that time not just the y2k that did it i just so but one of those and it was on a list you know you could look it up on the internet which was incredible considering the internet really didn't exist in its current form when I bought the thing. But you could look it up on the internet and it was on a list of devices that 
were not uh, going to be compatible after a certain day. And uh, there was nothing I could do about it. I'd bought it, you know, too long ago. Um, there's no warranty. They didn't offer anything. It just basically died. I kept it for a few years and then said, why am I keeping this and recycled it. And uh, so, yeah, but, but at least I had that experience. So now I can appreciate when I bring out my, my iPhone in it uh, while I'm hiking and it shows me on like a satellite image, you know, <laughs> what tree I'm standing under, you know, that kind of thing. It's really right. makes it incredible. Did you ever go geocaching? Any of you guys? I did. I did for a bit. Yeah. Um, it couldn't have been I'm trying to remember now. I mean, I guess it had to be because it wasn't that, um, that device. Oh, I know what it was. I bought my father a GPS, a later model GPS that mm-hmm. did actually have more stuff on it. And I thought he might like geocaching. And then we went together and uh, looked for a couple of things. Uh, so I got to experience that. I don't do geocaching, but uh, a lot of people have bought get out of hell free cards to put as a little gift into the uh, caches. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So I've got, I used to have that same Garmin handheld thingy. Um, so apparently we're like a bunch of geeks back then. <laughs> um, but what I, I, I rarely, rarely used it, but I did figure out uh, and got the cable so that I could connect it up to a laptop. And it was running, I think, Microsoft Streets and Maps or something like that. And if you basically aligned all the stars right, it would actually feed the location in real time and then update the map on your, on your laptop. And I had this sitting, I think, on the dashboard of our RV or something like that so that I could confirm that, yes, I was going where I thought I was going. Uh, but that was, you know, that's the kind of thing that it took back then to get the... Uh, to get the map hooked up in any way, shape, or form for that device. I just remember looking at it, now, you know, thinking about it now. I mean, it's nice to have your Latin long if you've got a way to do something with it. Mm-hmm. But compared to what we have today, gosh, it's like almost useless. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I remember how long it took to get, you know, it would, sh- it would show you like satellite one acquired, you know, right. satellite two, oh, looking, yeah. looking, satellite two acquired. You're like, oh, come it's on. It's like so exciting. Go, <laughs> go, third. Third. Do it. Third. Oh, the cloud. <laughs> yeah the, no the cloud covered it no you'd be like a canyon or something and it would be like having trouble acquiring signal it's like oh you're not gonna make me climb to the top of this canyon to find my location are you There's- i'm amazed how well you can get signals now on my phone um i've got a metal roof and it detects tons of satellites through that yeah oh yeah i know well uh- I'm running a uh, an app called GPS Status on my phone, and it provides this, you know, geeky-looking um, uh, turning compass, and it's showing all the satellites that it's hooked up to. Um, it's, it's probably uh, a lot. There's a lot. It's actually fixed on four just in the few seconds that I've turned this thing on. It's turning on, I think it's finding about 20. Anyway, um, you know, it's it's just amazing. And you're right. I mean, it syncs, it shows up almost immediately exactly where I'm at with an accuracy of, let's see, where is that? There's a lot of information on this screen. Um, my altitude is 509 feet. Woohoo. Well, so Kevin, you had, you had turned hmm. us on to that book about uh, the clocks. Remember yeah. the naval uh, clocks and longitude. That, yeah. The launch. Yeah. It's called longitude. That's right. I mean, and it's amazing to think of the techniques that they used to try to use to calculate. Right their longitude latitude. I mean, some of those would take either hours or sometimes if you wanted to like on land, you know, get the exact location of some point on land, mm-hmm. you could take months to do the calculations to get your accuracy that you wanted. Um, yeah. You know, using Jupiter's moons. I mean, that was one way <laughs> I remember and uh, all sorts of things. And it's incredible that we'll never have that problem again. It, even at this point, if we were to send a when mission the, to When Mars, the EMP hits, then... Well, yeah, no, but yeah, but if we were to send a mission to Mars now, yeah, probably we would send GPS a GPS satellite array ahead of that. Hmm. Matter of fact, I would be willing to bet that at some point we'll have a GPS satellite array orbiting Mars just for our robotic missions before the first person ever even hmm. touches down, and they'll have they'll have GPS from the moment the first man 
sets foot on Mars. Wow. So, yeah, it's kind of a kind of interesting long way we've come, and how in, in unsolvable that longitude problem was. It really wasn't that long ago. No, no, it wasn't. No. If if only those those two hundred years ago they had thought to launch satellites up into space and time the uh, speed of light, you know, from each of the satellites, then they could have solved the problem. They yeah. could have. Indeed. I know. Once again, the book is uh, Longitude, The True Story of a Lone Genius Who Solved the Greatest Scientific Problem of His Time. It's not a long book, and uh, it was fascinating. And it was by Dave, uh, sorry, Dava Sobel, S-O-B-E-L. I'm going to have to look that up because I've never understood how they figured that stuff out. But <laughs> a, clock, a clock and a compass or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's, that's what that's it was. It. Yeah. But it has to be a really good clock. Yeah, that was the problem was clocks aren't, we're, we take it for granted now. Right. Back then, it was a big problem getting a clock to be accurate. Down to the nanosecond. Yeah. Well, it was just, just being down to the, a few minutes was difficult, and that's what they needed. Right. Yep. So switching gears, one of my pet peeves with uh, all TVs, movies, that kind of stuff, are when the criminal wants to hide some data or they want to get some data from point A to point B and, you know, surreptitiously. And they're always like grabbing these massive external hard drives, I guess, sometimes entire computers. Where in reality, uh, you can now transfer, like there's a new uh, terabyte micro SD card. Uh, When you think about that, that's a terabyte. One, well, that's a trillion bytes in something that is really no bigger than your fingernail. Uh, That's the kind of thing that you could hide just about anywhere. You could mail just about anywhere and never have it be seen. Um, Again, my, my ability to suspend my disbelief tends to go at various movies and TV shows when they start doing things that are just silly. And that's one of them. Anyway, the fact that there is a one terabyte micro SD card, even though it, I think it is around $500, you know that's going to come down, um, is pretty amazing. It's not really that bad. I, it, oh, sure. I, thought, I, thought I'd, I didn't know what to expect. If you said like 2000 I would have been like, mm, but it's not, you know. Oh, no, no. For the, the, for the cost, right application, you'd be like, The right sure, application, the cost per byte is right there. I mean, yeah. it, it makes sense. And like I said, you know that it's going to come down. I mean, that's just the way these things work. The other one that I find interesting is there's a new micro SD format that is not necessarily bigger, but it's faster. Uh, almost one gigabit per second transfer rate. Or no, the gigabyte per second actually is what they're listing. Um, and at the same time, uh, using less power than the current equivalents. That to me, I mean, to, to dovetail back on the, on the photography one, I mean, given if we're all going to start shooting raw, and if you shoot in burst mode like i i tend to right especially like if you're shooting dogs you kind of need that like like dogs like like corgis then you're limited not by the speed of your camera but by the speed of your memory card how quickly can it push the bits onto the card and these new cards um are promising uh, even more uh, more, you know, the ability to to take more bits faster than ever before. Uh, again, especially when you're shooting raw and the the pictures themselves are already huge, uh, being able to take a bunch more of them all at once is is a really really interesting and good thing. So, I just thought those were interesting and another sign of you know life goes on. Memory cards get more, you know, get bigger while they get smaller and faster. I mean, it's just incredible. The thing that uh, really caught my eye in the article that you uh, linked to, which is on TechCrunch, the fast data speeds could lead mobile device makers to rethink how they equip devices with 5G data and cameras pumping out huge files like raw images. Expandable memory could make a comeback. And it's like, that was a forehead slapper for me because I never want to buy a phone that doesn't have expandable memory. And I don't know why the device manufacturers don't get that. I don't either. Yeah, I'm, and you, you've you now got the Pixel 3, right? And it does Actually, not- I canceled the order for it, and that was one of the reasons. Just, oh, really? Okay. I, I, I've got a Pixel, 
uh, Pixel XL. So it's you know the original, the larger version of the original. And like you, it does not have any expandable memory capacity. And in fact, um, even though I got the smaller memory version, it's the 32 gigabyte instead of the alternate 128 gigabyte version. Now, looking forward, if I were to replace it, I probably would replace the with replace it with a Pixel Three. I really, really like the Pixel uh, phone, but I would make absolutely certain to put as much RAM into it as possible, as much memory into it as possible, because you just you can never have too much RAM. Gary, yeah. what are they talking about? What's a phone with expandable memory? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> no, because well, to answer your question, Leo, about why do people not want that? I mean, you know, why wouldn't people want expandable memory? It's cloud stuff i mean for me it's i don't the the amount of memory on my iphone now is kind of irrelevant because of the cloud so you know i take a picture goes up to the cloud uh it keeps recent pictures around pictures get old i don't bother to use them they're not going to be on my phone anymore but they'll still be available through the cloud uh i could go right through the amount of storage on my phone makes really no difference to me um and the cloud will just keep storing all the all that stuff, uh, you know. When I analyze what's on my phone, because uh, of course there's apps for that too. Yeah. Um, the the things that end up taking a fair amount of space are things that you kind of sort of do want offline. Granted, photography's you know still photography's probably a bad example because you're right. Um, I don't have it set up quite the way you have it set up, but periodically Google Photos will clean up the old photos that are just lying around on my camera or on my phone. Um, the stuff you want, though, are things like videos you want to watch offline, or in my case, audible books, you know, audio books that I want to listen to offline while I'm traveling somewhere. How much, how much audio books, how many do you need when you're traveling? I mean, it's just audio. Oh, terabyte. A terabyte of audiobooks. <laughs> I want to be able to choose at a whim. Really high quality audio, though. <laughs> anything from my library. Um, no, I mean, for me, it's, you know, if I ever put a movie, you know, which is probably one to two gigs uh, on my phone, it's quick and temporary. Oh, I want a movie now. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow morning. I want to watch it. And that's that. Then I'm done with the movie. I don't keep it around. Um, so at most, I have maybe three movies. On a phone, usually I have a zero. Um, and, you know, and I guess videos that I take, but I don't take that much video. But even if I do, it's the same cloud thing as the photos. They get offloaded and everything like that. So, so I don't know. I, I didn't buy the, the iPhone with the lowest amount of, mem- of memory uh, because I know I do take photos and on trips and things like that and want to put a movie on there. So I bought the, the I think, the 128 gig model and i haven't even thought about how much i'm using i have no idea right now how much of that i'm using right no i've never gotten uh to the limit and the clouds are going to probably keep me from getting to that limit same with my music you know i just whatever i listen to it just adds it there and i guess if i don't listen to something long enough it pulls it off i'm just checking now with that application i was telling you about and yeah the biggest single use of space on my phone is in fact um, audio files from audible uh, one, 1.3 gotta, gig. Got to clear off those old books. <laughs> um, yeah, apparently. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you don't, yeah, they do take up a lot of space. So I got to start listening to shorter books. Yeah. But I, but I tend, I finish a book, I get rid of it because, you know, you can always re-download it again. Right. It depends on the book for me. There's a couple that I keep on there uh, just because they're books that I like re-listening to. But, but the current book, you're right. As soon as I'm done with it, it goes off. I just oh. checked the library and the... Uh, Total library of TEH podcasts is still under four gigs. So there. All right. That can't be our, that's not our finished. Like that's, that's because it's about 30 megs per episode. So is that about right? I show as, as of last week, 3.84 gigs. Hmm. Got a long way to fill up that new micro SD card. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make this an extra long episode. <laughs> 62 minutes. Weren't we talking about, you know, slowing it down to make it take up more time? Or maybe yeah. Just, Change the speed. Well. Randy. I was just amused by this. Um, this, was, this is about 10 days old now, but uh, Nike has new smart speakers. Sweet. And 
they crashed uh, about 10 days ago because of some um, mistake in the app and users couldn't make their shoes um, close up and, and uh, stick to their feet. <laughs> I just like, what are we doing in society? <laughs> we need a smart shoe and you can't just tie your own damn shoes. Well, you know why this exists. Yeah, back to the future. Back to the future, exactly. They're basically, it's a marketing gimmick based on the self-lacing shoes that were in Back to the Future. Um, they just decided they needed to do that. It's awesome that they managed to brick the shoes. Yes. That, that's, that's, you know, that's hilarious. And I don't really feel too bad for anybody that had the money to, to buy these shoes. Um, I have heard, do you know now if they've actually been able to fix the... Uh, I actually haven't checked, but my favorite line in the whole story was, for the time being, the shoes can sometimes be fixed with a hard reset. <laughs> yes, re reboot your boots. <laughs> no. I, I mean, there's been a lot to talk about here. It just made me kind of roll my eyes and, and chuckle. So, Wow. With, oh, with all our talk about... Uh, uh, longitude and everything earlier on, I think the title of this episode has got to be Reboot Your Shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I like Reboot Your Boots myself, but that's reboot okay. Reboot Your Boots. Um, the, so if I understand it correctly, there's actually more to these shoes than just lacing them for you because obviously they don't lace. They've got some kind of a little motor in there that draws things. Right. Apparently, you can also change the color of the lights in the insole that, you know, shine out from either side. So that's really Ooh, important. Oh, I need that's, that. Yeah, exactly. That's really Ooh, important. That's pretty cool. Even Michael J. Fox didn't have that. I know. All right, let's uh, get back to real tech. Real tech. So this is interesting. Uh, I ran across this. I did a, I did a talk uh, last week, it was. Uh, actually, Randy, you'll, you'll uh, get a kick out of this. It was for one of the online radio or on the air radio nets. Uh, they had me come in and do a little uh, five-minute training thing. And what I talked about was passwords. But what was interesting is that I ran across a couple of cases where passwordless logins are uh, becoming a thing. The article that, that we stumbled into is on TechCrunch again. More passwordless logins are coming to Android. And they're talking about how the Android operating system and the phones that they're being implemented on are being certified as a second factor, as you will, of, of a way of being able to authenticate who you are uh, by virtue of your actually being in possession of the phone. Now, if that sounds familiar, that's because that's like the second half of two-factor authentication. When you use two-factor authentication, you log in somewhere with your username and password, and then they either send us SMS message or you run an app on your phone or you do something else that essentially proves you are in physical possession of the phone. That's your second factor. What they're doing is removing the first factor and just sort of letting you use that second factor by itself as a way to log in. So, for example, uh, I recently uh, ended up logging into my Microsoft account for, um, I forget exactly what it was. It may not have been a, a, a clean login just to go read my email. Uh, no, it was. It was actually that. It was logging into Outlook.com to read my email from my Microsoft account. I entered in my email address. I hit OK, and it said, OK, go check your phone and approve the pop-up message that shows up there. In other words, all I had to do to log in was tap the right thing on the phone. I never had to enter my lengthy password. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to me, and I think that there's real promise here in uh, the ability to potentially get rid of passwords. Everybody hates passwords, especially today. They have to be long. They have to be complex. You need an application to manage them. You can't remember them. Whereas something like this, a simple way to simply prove you are who you are that doesn't involve any of that, makes a lot of sense. Uh, the other application or the other uh, a site that I use all the time, uh, medium.com, if you actually have an email-based login there, they don't have a password at all. When you log in there, you enter your email address, they send your account a link, and your ability to receive that email and click on that link 
proves you are who you say you are because you have access to that account. So I just find it interesting. It's going to be a really long time before this takes over. I think passwords are here for a really long time. But I'm hopeful that uh, there are some viable alternatives to actually using a password that are significantly simpler for the average user. I think it's going to be quicker than you think. Uh, I see this a lot too. Uh, it makes sense. Um, what may hold it back is the stupidity of, of some of the older type companies. Just before we started our show today, I was trying to log on to a system with, from a big old company and I needed to create an account with a password and it would not let me put in uh, the automatically created password from uh, you know, the uh, Apple keychain. It wouldn't let me put in from one password. It wouldn't let me, in fact, paste in a password. It would only let me type in a password. And they probably think they're being more secure doing that when, in fact, all they're doing is just encouraging people to use weak passwords. Mm -hmm. There's a a worse one. Um, There's a government site, not surprising, where you can't even type in your password. They throw a virtual keyboard on the screen, and you have to click on the various letters. Oh, man. Password. You can't paste. You can't do any of that kind of stuff. You must click one uh, painful click after the other. It's yes. really, really bad. It's bad. So this, these types of companies are probably going to have a hard time going to this, what, what you're calling the one-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same. And, you know, I think this, this if you want to call it one-factor, is, uh, is a great option for sites that it's just not – high security stuff. Like you were saying, going to medium.com to right. read articles, right. maybe post articles. It's not your bank account. It's not your, you know, uh, this, you know, stock market trading account or your, you know, something with your credit card. It's just the site. Why have another password that you need to store somewhere that you need to remember? It's not really necessary. This right. is a great solution for it. The downside of the medium approach, by the way, is that you have to wait for that link to arrive. And sure. depending on how your email is configured, that can, you know, be a minute or two or five. And that, you know, can seem like an annoyance. But uh, nonetheless, I think it's a step in the right direction. Cool. All right. Should we wrap? To uh, wrap up. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh61. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. We would appreciate your rating the podcast and whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next week. Toodles. Bye. Later. Ciao.